This morning's passage is from Matthew 26, 36 through 46. And as a reminder, something that we're, um, we've been doing is uh, at the conclusion of the scripture, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and the response is thanks be to God. And I'm actually going to be reading from the NIV translation this morning. And again, that's Matthew 26, 36 through 46. And I'm going to be reading from my phone. So I'm glad I brought my readers this morning. Matthew 26, 26 through 36. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. This is the word of the Lord. You're good. Hey, good morning, everybody. It is uh, really good to be here with you this morning. Um, And it's really, really good to see so many familiar faces. If if, If I haven't met you, like Chris said, my name's Adam. It's good to see familiar faces, it's good to see a lot of new faces, and it's, it's really good to see what all God is doing in and through this church uh, for the sake of His glory in Kansas City. Um, my wife and I love this city. Uh, we uh, got married young, a couple of Arkansas kids at 19 and 23, and uh, we moved immediately to Kansas City. Like when we got back from our honeymoon, we didn't go to Arkansas, we came here. And um, had a second growing up here, like we became adults here. We bought a couple of houses here. All three of our kids were born here. And so uh, this place will always feel like home because it it is. It is home to us. And um, it's so good to be back with you, and and we really miss you. Had a chance to spend time with your staff this weekend. And I just want to, you know, the Bible says the only place we're supposed to uh, compete with each other is in showing honor. So I just want to honor your staff in front of you. They're amazing people. They're full of Jesus. The way that I sit back and watch them relate to one another with compassion and encouragement over the last couple days has blown me away. They, um, they love you the way they talk about you and pray for you. I want to honor them. And I also want to honor Chris and Adrian. You know, um, Chris mentioned he and I got to had the privilege of pastoring together. I, I had so much fun pastoring with you, Chris. But also, Carrie and I uh, had the joy of being pastored by Chris and Adrian. And if you've I don't mean to sound this mean this to sound like I don't want your life to, you to wreck your life or whatever. But if you've never had to like sit on their couch and be counseled by them, I hope that happens to you. What you interpret that however you want. Um, 
but I hope you land in counseling, and I hope you land in it with Chris and Adrian, and I just, uh, I just probably booked you for the next few months. But, like, um, honestly, my wife and I, as newlyweds, sat across from them many late nights of them pouring into us, loving on us, pouring the love of the Father into us, and we would not be who we are or where we are in our walk with Christ and where we are in our marriage, um, if not for them. So we want to thank you guys. We love you. A um, little bit about me of kind of an update on where we are now. I'm, I'm back in northeast Arkansas, where we're from, bustling metropolis of Paragould, 30,000 people. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm a pastor at the Crossing Church. The Crossing Church sends their greetings. They're actually praying for me and praying for you as, as I speak. And so I'm here representing um, your brothers and sisters there. Um, Carrie and I have three daughters, uh, Lucy Blue will be 10 uh, in a couple of weeks. Susanna Jane just turned seven, and Georgie Love will also be six in a couple of weeks. So I'm a, I'm a husband and a dad surrounded by women. So like it's, it's, um, I don't know if you saw Anchorman, and you remember the scene where he's in the, uh, the phone booth, and he's crying, and he says that he's stuck inside a glass cage of emotion. That's my life. We even have, we got a dog and they wouldn't let us get a, a male. We have a, a female golden doodle. We recently bought a Roomba and, um, and I said that this will be a boy. So uh, if you look on my phone on the Roomba app, the Roomba's name is Doug. And true story, my, my almost 10 year old has a sticky note on her door. I didn't ask her to do this. I've just discipled her well. Okay. So but she has a sticky note on the door that says, no boys allowed in my room except for my dad and Doug. So um, that's, uh, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Uh, so that's my life, man. I'm surrounded by these, uh, these wonderful women that God has entrusted to me. And I make the joke about being stuck inside a glass cage of emotion. And, and before, you know, that offends you, I want you to know that like my wife and kids would tell you that I'm the most emotionally reactive of them all, which is actually a great segue into what God's been doing in us for the last six or seven years. And as I want to bring my heart to you, I'm, I'm showing up today, like in the work, in the work that God's been doing in us. I show up shoulder to shoulder with you. I promise you everything I'm about to say, I, I have not mastered. I'm, I'm, I teach more than I can live. I'm, I'm trying to learn this. I'm trying to practice this as I go. Um, but, but talking about me being emotionally reactive is actually a great segue into what I want to talk about. So here's what I want to do. If you have a Bible, as, as you heard Matthew read, let's go to Matthew chapter 26. And uh, I'd love to just pray one more time just to situate us again in God's presence just to get present to ourselves and present to his spirit. So would you just uh, bow your heads and let's just go to the Father. Would you pray for me as I pray for you? And uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the bold access we have to Jesus through the cross. Thank you that you've not left us as orphans. We do not have to figure out how to navigate the pains of this life and our struggles with sin and the flesh and all that stuff, grief and loss, and all, we don't have to navigate that alone because you have adopted us as your own sons and daughters, which means you've given us a dad and you've given us a family. So thank you. My prayer this morning is that you would awaken our hunger and thirst for Jesus and that you would remove any barriers between us and Jesus. 
Just do what you love to do, Holy Spirit, and put a spotlight on Jesus and lead us to him in surrender as we sang about this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. Um, For the last uh, several years, I've been coaching leaders through a ministry based out of Nashville that's called Tin Man. And here's our mission statement, okay? The mission statement is we provide coaching, consultation, guidance, uh, mentoring to those who want to recover the life they've lost and discover the life they want and they were made for. And here's the key, by learning to live from the heart. And that's why we call it Tin Man. So if you're familiar with the, with the Wizard of Oz and the Tin Man, he's the guy that's on a journey of recovering his heart because he's lost touch with it. Raise your hand if you've seen the film, Wizard of Oz. You're in Kansas, so I hope you've seen the movie. Um, so in the film, whenever you find the Tin Man, he's on the side of the road, he's completely rusted, and he's stuck, and that's where Dorothy and the Scarecrow find him. Now, what most people don't know is that the film is based on a novel by Frank Baum. And... Um, in, in the novel, in the story of the book, you actually get the backstory of Tin Man, of like how he got to this place in his life where he's stuck and Dorothy has to help him. So here's the backstory, okay? Um, to rewind it, when you first meet Tin Man in the book, he's, he's a flesh and blood human being. He's a normal guy. He's not a robot. He's not a, he's not a machine. He's just a normal flesh and blood guy. He's fallen head over heels in love with this munchkin girl. And at this point in the story, his heart is fully engaged in his life. He knows what he wants. He loves this woman. He's passionate about this woman. He's passionate about the life that he wants to build for this woman. And so what he does is he's a woodsman by trade. So he goes out and he starts chopping wood to try to earn money, to save money, to marry this girl, to start a family with this girl, and to provide for his family. What happens in the story, though, is one of the wicked witches is against this marriage. So she curses his axe. So now the tin man, who's a flesh and blood guy, is living under a curse. And what happens is he goes to work chopping wood, and because he's living under a curse, he has an accident, he chops his arm off. So he goes to the tinsmith, and he says, can you help me? And the tinsmith fashions this metal arm and puts it on him. Well, he goes back out in the woods. You can imagine what's about to happen. He's living under a curse. He's out chopping wood. And he starts to notice, I actually like this. Like he's kind of messing with his metal arm and he's like, I can't feel anything. He's stronger with his metal arm. He can chop with more ferocity. He can work longer. He can work harder. And when he smashes his hand with a thumb or, thumb or like with a hammer or whatever, like he doesn't feel. He doesn't feel anything. He has another accident, cuts his other arm off, goes to the tinsmith. Tinsmith puts a metal arm on, cuts his legs off, cuts his head off. Like the guy, as this goes on and on, he keeps going back to the tinsmith, gets more and more metal pieces. And so before you know it, he's gone from being a flesh and blood human being with a heart that can feel and that can connect with other people to now the dude is a machine. And he can't feel anything. And all he does is work his brains out. So he chops wood nonstop. He works nonstop. He can't feel anything. He has no capacity or margin for emotion or connection. All he does is perform. So here's what happens. He's completely lost touch with who he is. He's completely lost touch with his heart and why he was made, what it is that he's working for, and what it is that he was made for, which is relationship. 
He doesn't have the capacity to do those things anymore. Because he doesn't know when to stop and how to stop and works nonstop, he works himself through a rainstorm, gets rusted and stuck, and now Dorothy finds him on the side of the road and he needs someone else to do for him what he can't do for himself. Tragically, in this process, he loses the girl. Because in the process of losing his heart and becoming a machine, he stops connecting with her emotionally. So she ends up marrying someone else, and when Dorothy finds the tin man, he has this massive wake-up call when he finds Dorothy, when she finds him. This massive wake-up call where he looks at her and he says, I've, I've got to get my heart back. And she begins to lead him on this journey of relearning what it means to be human, how to have feelings about his life, and how to connect with people. Now, I share that story with you for a reason. I think this is a really powerful story because I think it highlights at least two things that are fundamentally true about you and me as human beings, okay? The first thing I think this story highlights is this. To be human is to feel. Um, to be human is to feel. You and I are not machines. You and I were designed for intimacy and for connection with God and others, which depends on our capacity to be able to feel, and have feelings about our life, and share our emotions and our feelings with one another and with God. We're, we're, to be human is to feel and to connect. The second thing in light of that, that the story highlights for us, is when you lose your ability to feel, you lose your ability to connect. Um, when you chop off your emotional life, you chop off your ability to do relationship. Did you catch that? When you chop off your emotional life, you chop off your ability to do relationship. And what Frank Baum is actually giving us in the story is a commentary on the human story. So here's the human story. Turns out 10 men's story is my story and your story. Because when you and I grow up in a fallen world that is cursed, you learn pretty early on in life to adapt, to adjust, to put up walls, to put on armor, and essentially to become a machine that doesn't have to feel. And here's what you learn early on in the garden. You, you, see, you see Adam and Eve becoming machines in the garden. They put up armor, and now they cover, and they hide, and they blame, so they don't have to walk through their feelings back into relationship with God. So you see the defensive patterns. Is that my beard? Somebody have any uh, beard trimmer? Beard trimmer? Anybody? Um, I can go handheld or this bad boy if I need to. But what you learn in the garden right away is you see that the self-protective strategies that we adopt to keep us disconnected from having to feel our feelings, those things keep us disconnected relationally. Does that make sense? God can't relate to a machine, and machines can't relate to God. That's a massive problem when the gospel's all about relationship. So the core question, the big idea that I want to talk about this morning is in order for us to experience a life of deep connection that we were made for, we have to follow Jesus, not Dorothy, on this inward journey of taking off the armor and relearning how to be human and what it means to feel. So what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, the Sunday school answer is always look to Jesus. So let's look to Jesus and see how he models this for us. All right, go to Matthew chapter 26. And I want to invite you to hang with me because we're going to bounce around. We're going to look at several passages, but we're going to start and end here in Matthew 26. So take a deep breath. Look at the text. Here's what's going on. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
He knows he's just moments away from being arrested and taken to the cross to be crucified for our sins. And we pick up the story in verse 36. Matthew says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. Check this out. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So stop right there, hold your finger on Matthew 26, because we're going to come back and unpack the rest of this passage later. For now, all I want you to notice is that Matthew doesn't just give us the surface levels about Jesus' life. He doesn't just give us the ministry stats of whatever awesome thing Jesus did that day. If he healed this many people and cast out these demons, he doesn't just stay on the surface with us. Notice Matthew gets beneath the surface and brings us into Jesus' emotional world. And he tells us what Jesus is feeling. In this case, he says Jesus is feeling sorrowful and troubled. I like the New Living Translation, actually, that says Jesus was anguished and distressed. Anguished and distressed. Or I like the way King Jimmy puts it, right? If you want to go back to King James, here's here's what James has to say. Jim, whatever you want to call him. Uh, says Jesus was, quote, sorrowful and very heavy. How many of you have ever felt emotionally very heavy? Um, It's been a very heavy couple of years on this moving through a, a pandemic and a global mental health crisis. Like it's been, some of you in this room are feeling very heavy right now. And if that's you, Matthew wants you to see that Jesus sees you and Jesus understands. Jesus knows what you're going through because he's actually been in that emotional place. How do you know Jesus has been in that emotional place? Because the Bible doesn't try to hide it from you. The biblical authors bring you beneath the surface into Jesus' emotional world and tell us what Jesus is feeling. He's been there where you are. He has felt very heavy before. So he has a lot of compassion for you. And you see this all over the New Testament, okay? Again, the Bible does not try to hide the emotional life of of Jesus from us. Let me just give you some quick examples, okay? Stay with me. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. We read this. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Okay? In the garden, there you see it on the screen. In the garden of Gethsemane, Um, we find Jesus feeling very heavy and in distress. Here we see him spilling over with gladness and joy, so much so that he breaks out in singing and praising God. So here he is, the Bible's bringing us into his joy. That's an emotion, that's a feeling. You keep going in Luke, and you get to chapter 12, verse 50. We can put this on the screen as well, I think. Jesus tells his disciples, I have a baptism to undergo, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is talking about his baptism into the waters of suffering and death. He, here's what it is. He knows what's coming and he's dreading it. How many of you have ever felt that emotion of dread? You're dreading Monday. You're dreading the, the waiting on the doctor's report to come back. You're dreading to see what's going to happen with your marriage. You, you're, that feeling of dread, Jesus is like, I'm very acquainted with that. How do we know? The New Testament tells us. Jesus knows what's around the corner for him and he's feeling dread about it. I find this fascinating that the Bible doesn't try to hide this from us. He's aware that his soul is in distress. 
John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Hang with me. This, this is, I love this. Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem, and here's what we read. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So Jesus made a whip. Like, this was calculated, all right? He made a whip of cords and drove them. Drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He's mad at the animals. Like he's, he scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned the tables. He's flipping tables, guys. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want you guys to look at that text. I want you to put yourself in that scene. And I actually want to invite you to give me some feedback. I don't know if you talk back, but I'm going to ask you to talk back to me. What, put your empathic, turn your empathic radar on and connect with Jesus emotionally. What is he feeling in this text? He's feeling angry. He's, the, the, verse 17 says he's consumed with zeal, which is the Greek word for righteous anger or passion. We, we, we tend to skip this on the flannel board. This is not flannel board Jesus or Sunday school Jesus because we don't know what to do with the Jesus that's chasing people with whips. I actually want, like, I want you to think about this. What was he going to do if he caught somebody? Like, <laughs> Jesus is about to spank someone, guys. This is in the Bible. Like, we don't, but here's the thing. You want to know why we're uncomfortable with this? We're uncomfortable with Jesus' anger because we're uncomfortable with our own anger. We don't know what to do with anger because we've lost touch with what it means to be human. And to be human is to be angry. You realize there's some things, if, if you look at some, some things in this life called injustices and they don't make you angry, if you look at some things and you don't get angry, you're sinning. And we've lost touch with how to do that. And here the Bible says, man, Jesus is angry. He's angry. Let's do one more. I love this. John, chapter 11, John chapter 11. Jesus has just learned that one of his closest friends, Lazarus, has died, and he's been trying to get there to see him before he passes away, but he doesn't make it in time. So we pick up the story here in verse 32 and 33. When Mary reached that place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We're getting into his emotional world. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? Right there, I want you to notice the connection between Jesus' Jesus' emotional health and his ability to love people. Right there, notice that. See how he loved him? Now, some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb of his friend. Jesus, in this passage, is grieving the loss of, uh, loss of his friend. We, we see him weeping. In fact, um, this phrase, deeply moved in spirit, literally reads in Greek, to snort like a horse. Have you ever seen somebody cry that hard? Where there's the snorting kind of cry? Snorting, sobbing, snotting, that kind of cry? We, we call that an ugly cry, 
right? Because why do we call it that? Why do I call it that? Because the machine part of me feels uncomfortable about that and doesn't know how to do that. And I don't want to see you do that because it makes me anxious. That's the machine part of me, right? And here we see Jesus snorting like a horse, crying. Listen, in all these examples, here's, here's the point and the truth that I want us to embrace. Jesus, our Lord, was not a robot. And he was not a machine. He was not a tin man. Jesus was deeply connected to his heart. Jesus was not just on the surface doing stuff for God and knowing stuff about God, but Jesus had this deep abiding connection with God because he had this intimate emotional connection with himself and with God, and he shared that with other people. He's he's a highly emotional being, and he displays a high level of emotional awareness. And this has massive implications for us because Jesus is showing us something profound about both who God is and, and, and something profound about who we are as human beings and how we were made. Because Jesus is the God-man. So in his divinity, like on the one hand, Jesus is fully God and, and he's showing us what God is like. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like, which means when you look at Jesus, you see a God who's emotional. God is a, he's not some impersonal force. He's, he's actually a person who feels God is an emotional being, and Jesus is showing us what, he li- what he's like. God has deep, deep, deep feelings about life, and he's aware of what he feels, and he shares what he feels with others. On the other hand, Jesus, because he's fully man, is showing us not only what God is like, but what humans are like. And he's showing us again that to be human is to feel. We are emotional beings created in the image of an emotional God. And to be human is to feel. This is how God designed us. You know, I, I'm a left brain guy. Like, I like logic and reason and debate and, like, uh, languages and all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm not... So, we like to think of ourselves as, as mostly logical creatures, right? Just Let's just be logical here. But the reality is, if you look at the created order, you and I are born emotional creatures way before we are thinking creatures, You actually come out of the womb experiencing and processing life through feelings, not cognitive abilities, which for dudes are not developed until you're like 43, right? So like, that's, you, just look at the created order of how God designed humans to function. Like your emotional capacity is fully developed at birth. Babies feel sad. They, They know how to connect and absorb the emotional presence of mom and dad. Like, this is how God made you. And Jesus is putting us back in touch with that. Now, tragically, we live in a culture that, by and large, teaches us to deny and dishonor this part of us that feels. Double tragically, uh, most of the Western church has followed the way of culture and not the way of Jesus and how we relate to our emotions. So there's at least three negative ways our culture has discipled us to treat our emotions. Let me give these to you quickly if you're taking notes, okay? Three ways, negative ways, our culture has shaped us to deal with our emotions. Here they are in brief. Number one, we live in a culture that teaches us to shame our feelings. Um, We shame ourselves for being afraid because I'm a grown man and grown men don't feel afraid, right? We shame ourselves for feeling sad or hurt because that's weak, 
So we tell ourselves things like grow up, toughen up, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, be a man, stop being such a baby. This is, this is the way I have related to myself and talked to myself for most of my life, except I've called myself names that I can't repeat up here. Okay, for, for having feelings. I've called myself names for having feelings. I've shamed myself for being a man with feelings. By the way, there's a cultural Christian version of this. Um, in fact, I might argue Christians, what Christians do is even worse because we actually use the Bible to shame our feelings. Here's how this works with me in my head. What's wrong with you, Adam? Why, why in the world are you sad and afraid? Do you not believe the gospel? Shame on you for being sad and afraid. Do you not believe that God loves you and he's with you and that he's always going to be with you and that your future is glory and that he's given you a... I mean, look around you, Adam. You have a wife that loves you and kids that are healthy and a job and you're a pastor for crying out loud. So you're supposed to be like, I don't know, some kind of tin man or something. Like, what's wrong with you that you have feelings? Jesus is alive. Cheer up, Adam. Don't be... What do you have to be sad about? Can I, can I just say this? Using the gospel or the Bible to dishonor and shame emotions is at least one definition of spiritual abuse. And we do it to ourselves all the time. And you, and you give what you have. The, the kind of the golden rule of like you treat other people, you love yourself, you love others as you love yourself. Jesus once said that, right? So if this is how we treat ourselves, this is how we treat other people. We shame ourselves for having feelings. Second way our culture disciples us to deal with our feelings is to just minimize them, right? Just diminish them, and maybe they'll go away. Um, so here's how this kind of sounds. Just look on the bright side. Ain't so bad. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, not so sure about that. Uh, this is hard. Here's the good one, right? This is hard, but you know everything happens for a reason, right? Um, or we compare our suffering to other people's suffering. And we say, well, gosh, man, like that person's like buried a child, so what do I have to be sad about, right? You know, David Kessler says the worst pain is always yours. And you feel it acutely. And Jesus feels it with you if you're part of him. But if you deny it, he can't meet you there. But this is what we do. We minimize it. And there's a Christian version of this too. Uh, we do this thing where we spiritually bypass our emotional pain. I asked a friend recently whose family had been hit really hard by COVID. How are you doing? It's a standard question, right? How, how are you doing? How is it with your soul and your family? And he literally responded with, I'm better than I deserve. Uh, if I got what I deserved, I'd be in hell. All right. So I know, I know this thing because I do this too. So I just sat there. I, didn't, I actually didn't take the bait. I didn't respond. And, and the, the silence got so uncomfortable for him, he finally said, okay, this sucks. <laughs> so he's like, this is hard. This is really, really hard. Um, what we're going through is hard. To put it another way, here's what we do. We want to bypass the Garden of Gethsemane and what Jesus and the disciples had to walk through on Friday and Saturday, and we want to jump to Sunday and just live in the victory and say, Jesus is alive, everything is going to be okay. Now, is that true? Jesus is alive, everything is going to be okay? Yes, that's our hope. Like, we should preach that to each other and to ourselves, of course. Here's the point, though. 
You can't get to Sunday if you don't walk through Friday and Saturday. You, like, you can't, you, you, can't, you can't minimize or bypass or go around or go over or go under the stuff that hurts. You can only go through it. That's why, this, that's why the psalmist talks about going through the valley of the shadow of death. And here's what happens when you don't try to bypass it or minimize it. You go through it. Jesus walks through it with you. And that's how you get the intimacy and the growth and the transformation and the connection. But again, you don't get any of that relational stuff if you bypass it or go around it or minimize it. Last thing. We shame our feelings. We minimize our feelings. Third way our culture disciples us to deal with our feelings is to just distract or numb them. Oh, man, I'm, I'm bad about this. We, we stay busy. Ask anybody how they're doing. They're going to say busy. That's what they're going to say. Busy. Um, every space in our lives is filled up with work, commitments, kids' activities, entertainment, screens. Um, we use anything to numb. Everything's a coping mechanism. Career, food, sex, porn, drugs, alcohol, sleep, screens, video games, shopping, exercise, whatever I can find to help me escape the vulnerable emotional places that I don't want to have to feel. And here's, here's the application, okay? Here's, here's the key takeaway, the point, the point I'm trying to make. That's, that doesn't work. Not only does it keep you disconnected from God, but here's the thing. Do you realize, again, going back to the gardener, back to the tin man, the coping mechanisms that we develop to try to numb our feelings do so much damage relationally. I would dare say that most of the sinful patterns and behaviors in our lives are coping mechanisms for feelings that we don't want to feel. So if that's not working, here's the big takeaway. We need to follow Jesus into a different way. We need to follow Jesus into a better way. And that's the point I'm trying to make. Look, as disciples of Jesus, our goal is to have the same relationship to our emotional world as Jesus had to his. Because he's, he's our template for what it means to be human. I think it was Dallas Willard who once said, you can't experience the life of Jesus if you don't adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you don't practice the way of Jesus. So... Um, the goal of a disciple is to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. That's the goal of a disciple, which means that our goal is to have the same relationship to our feelings as Jesus had to his. Well, what kind of relationship did Jesus have with his feelings? I'm glad you asked. That's where I want to land the plane. So how do you do this, how do you do this in a healthy way? Um, for Jesus, it's clear that, that emotional health, emotional awareness is, is crucial for spiritual maturity. So let's, let's really zoom in and talk about this for a second. How do, we, how do we practice the way of Jesus when it comes to our feelings? Well, there's a pattern that we notice in his life. So let's go back to the garden in Matthew chapter 26. Back to the garden in Matthew 26. Take a closer look. You see this basic pattern of emotional health and awareness emerge and as disciples, this is the pattern we are to adopt. Um, Chip Dodd really crystallizes this pattern, by the way, so I want to give him credit to that for that. Here it is. Three steps to emotional health and emotional awareness and deep connection. Step number one, feel your feeling. Step number two, tell the truth about your feeling. Step number three, invite God into your feeling. I'm going to try to get really practical with you, okay? Here we go. Um, take a deep breath, and we're almost done. 
Step number one, the first step in becoming like an emotionally healthy, deeply connected disciple of Jesus is you have to allow yourself to feel your feelings. So look at verse 37. Remember, Jesus is moments away from going to the cross here. And in verse 37, he tells his disciples, you guys stay here. I'm going to give myself some space for a minute. And this is the part I want you to see. It says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And if I were you, I would underline or circle the word be. Here's what you notice about Jesus in this moment. He's not up in his head in this moment. He's not strategizing and grasping for control. He's not numbing or avoiding. He's not shaming himself for what he's feeling. He's not using Bible verses to talk himself out of what he's feeling. Jesus is just being. And he allows himself to be where he's at emotionally, which is in deep emotional pain. The grief, the hurt, the fear of what lies ahead, the loneliness, the shame of a sense of rejection. Yes, Jesus felt shame. He felt your shame of your sin and my sin on the cross, but he also felt the shame of being unwanted and rejected. He felt dishonored and dehumanized. And he was murdered and betrayed and spit on and mocked. Like that's shame. Shame was put on him. And he's feeling all of that in this moment. And he's just being in it. And the reason why God puts this in the Bible is because as disciples of Jesus, we can learn from him how to do this. Adam Young is, a, is an artist, uh, or therapist rather, and an author that I really respect. And here's what he says. I love this line. He says, The goal of feeling your feelings is flow. I would write that word down. Here's what he means. Your feelings are trying to take you somewhere. And they will. By the way, your feelings will either take you into a coping mechanism that might become an addiction and a roadblock to intimacy, or your feelings will take you into intimacy with God and others. But, but, but be sure they will take you somewhere. Um, and Adam Young says, the, the goal is flow. Ride the wave and let it take you where you need to go. You might not stop crying or shaking for two hours, but if you allow yourself to feel your feelings, you'll be in a different place on the river than you were two hours ago. And check this out. You've put yourself in a place where your deepest needs can be met. What Adam Young is getting at is that our feelings open the door to our needs. Not just like your need for food and clothing and shelter, like... There's babies in Russian orphanages that have food and clothing and shelters, and they're dying because they don't have what they need. They don't have emotional connection, and they can't absorb a loving presence. That's what you need. That's what the gospel gives you. And what Adam Young is saying is that behind every feeling is a basic human need that can only be met through relationships. So if you feel hurt this morning, you need attention and healing. That's what you need. If you feel lonely, you need presence. You need to be seen and known. You need to belong. If you feel sad, you need comfort. If you feel anger, you have a voice that needs to be heard. If you feel fear, you need protection and refuge and a safe place. If, if you feel shame, you need affirmation of your identity and worth. If you feel guilt, you need grace and forgiveness. If you feel glad, you need to celebrate with God and others. And if you, here's the point. If you can't feel your feelings, you can't have your needs met, 
which means you can't do relationship because you can't be needy. Is that clicking? So if you can't, listen, here's how it works. If you can't feel hurt, you can't have healing. If you can't feel lonely, you can't have intimacy. If you can't feel sad, you can't be comforted. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be. What happens if you deny what it is you need to mourn? Well, you can't receive his comfort, right? So it gets worse, because as I've said a few times, and I'll just mention, like, here, if you deny your feelings, not only do you deny your needs, but your feelings don't go away. They grow into something toxic, and they become impaired. They get worse. So if you deny your hurt, it doesn't go away. It becomes bitterness and resentment. If you're holding on to a grudge this morning and you're bitter with someone, that means that underneath your bitterness is hurt. You've been hurt, and you need attention and healing. If you deny the hurt, it doesn't go away. It becomes bitterness. And then you can't forgive. And Jesus says a lot of things about that. Um, if you deny your loneliness, it, it doesn't go away. It leads to seeking out false connection. If you bury your sadness, your sadness becomes self-pity, which means I'm going I'm to feel sorry. For, I'm going to demand that you do my sadness for me. Fear becomes anxiety and rage because you're trying to get control of what it is you're afraid of. Shame and guilt doesn't go away. It becomes toxic shame and guilt, which says I'm so broken and worthless no one could ever love me. I mean, again, nine times out of ten, this is the stuff that leads us into the stuff that devastates our relationships. All that to say, to be emotionally and spiritually healthy, we have to allow ourselves to feel our feelings. Now, that's step one. Feel your feeling. Jesus takes us to the next step in, in, this, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Step two is you tell the truth about what it is you're feeling. That's what Jesus does in verse 38. Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's telling the truth about what he feels. He's vulnerable. He's naming it. Some of you need to name it this morning. And he says, look, I'm overwhelmed. How many of you have ever felt overwhelmed? How many of you feel overwhelmed now? How many of you have ever felt embarrassed to admit that you're overwhelmed? Like, as a pastor, I, I, like have, I've bought, I had and still do sometimes buy into this lie that the mark of spiritual maturity is that you have your stuff together in such a way that you don't get easily overwhelmed. Well, Jesus deconstructs that and says, actually, the mark of spiritual maturity is uh, when you can tell the truth about being overwhelmed. And Jesus says, I'm overwhelmed. I'm so, look, he says, to the point of death. Let me translate that for you. I'm so sad and scared I could die. This sorrow is crushing my life out. Anybody ever felt that way? Some of you have deep losses in your life. This church has gone through a lot. Jesus understands that because he's been there and he tells the truth about it. I'm sorrowful to the point, I'm overwhelmed here, guys. And if that's you, if you've hurt like that, here's the good news. Jesus gives you permission today to be honest about it. To find someone you trust and tell the truth about it. This is where I'm at. This is what I'm going through. And maybe for some of you, it's something you've never, ever shared or talked about before because the fear of being caught and overwhelmed in that, in that emotional pain is overwhelming. 
You're afraid if you go there, you won't come back. Or it's hard to go there because it's associated with so much shame for you. Let me tell you something. You don't have to carry that alone. You want to know the only thing, like, the only thing, if you want to watch shame grow, if you want to put it in a Petri dish and watch it grow, then the ingredients you put in there are secrecy and judgmentalism. And that sucker will grow. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to hold the secrets anymore. You can tell the truth about your life and what hurts in the family of God and in the kingdom of God. And if you do that, if you will do that, if you're willing to feel your feelings and tell the truth about your feelings, then and only then can you encounter the presence of God in that place. That brings us to step three. Invite God into your feelings. Look at Jesus in verse 39. It says this, going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prays. That's huge. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Here's what I want you to notice. Please, please catch this. Jesus takes his feelings and he turns them into prayer. So here's the big takeaway. This is what I would write down if I were you. This was a game changer for me to discover this about six years ago. According to Jesus, feelings are places to meet with God. Your feelings are not the thing about you that are broken, you should be ashamed of, the thing that you need to overcome so you can get better. Like Your feelings are doorways into prayer, into intimacy and closeness with God. My goodness, God gave us a whole book in the Bible to teach us how to do this. This is what the Psalms are. The Psalms are men and women, ordinary people just like you and me, feeling their feelings, telling the truth about their feelings, and inviting God to meet them in their feelings. And if you've ever parented young kids in God's economy of grace, the way he designed it, your kids are trying to teach you how to do this. When when our daughters uh, get their feelings hurt, they run to me and Carrie for healing. Well, that's, 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 they're discipling us. Pay attention to that. Um, when, when they're sad, they come to us for comfort. When it's the middle of the night and she's had a bad dream and she's afraid, she cries out to me for my presence. For, she seeks refuge in my presence. And you want to know what that does? That pulls my father heart. It's like a hook in my heart that just, it's like a magnet. When, when my kids are vulnerable and they bring their feelings to me and they bring their needs to me, it pulls my dad heart and it draws us deeper into relationship with one another. And to use Jesus' logic, if that's true of an imperfect, evil parent, how much more true is that of God the Father? Your vulnerability and neediness is what's so attractive about you. <laughs> I said this to the staff on, on, on this weekend, like, the gospel actually does require something of you. The one thing the gospel requires of you is the one thing you happen to have plenty of, which is your need. And if you can be needy and vulnerable, that's why Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. He's inviting us to take off the armor and get back in touch with what it means to be a human, which is to feel and have needs. And he's inviting us to bring that to him. And when you do that, he will lead you to a place of surrender and trust. Jesus is really honest with the Father. Um, I don't like where I'm at. 
Did you notice that, how honest Jesus is? Prayer is not a place for you to come to God as you ought. It's a place for you to come to God as you are. And Jesus models that. He's very honest. Look, Dad, I don't like where I'm at. I know we mapped this out before the foundations of the world, yada, 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 but I'd like to do something different. I don't want to do this. I don't li- I'm scared. I don't want to be here. This hurts. I don't want to go through this. I would rather go over, under, or around it. But then he gets to this place where he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. So when faced with, the, with his limits as being a human, Jesus gives his trust and his obedience to the Father. And rather than fighting for control or reaching for the fix to numb, like Jesus opens his hands and he just surrenders to the Father's will. And he trusts that this place he's in and what it is he's about to walk through and having to go through, the Father will take care of him and be with him. And it's so important for us to learn how to do this from Jesus as we follow him. I want to say this, because I tried to say this earlier. Like, I, I'm not good at this. My wife will tell you. I'm, I'm learning. But being a disciple of Jesus is not about mastering something perfectly. It's about struggling and wrestling with something faithfully. And Jesus is inviting us on this deeper journey to, to, to faithfully put this into practice of feeling your feelings, telling the truth about your feelings, and inviting Jesus, inviting the Father, inviting the Spirit into your feelings. And here's the thing. I'll close with this quote, okay? We're about to move to a time of communion. I love this quote from Tremper Longman. And I love it because he's a linguist. So he's like a left brain, logical, reason guy. Here's what he says in a book he wrote with Dan Allender called The Cry of the Soul. He says, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. And reality is where we meet God. It's a powerful statement. Longman is saying that if you deny or neglect your emotions, you're not living in reality. And the problem with that is God doesn't exist outside of reality. So the invitation for all of us this morning is to embrace reality. Embrace your emotional reality and invite God to meet you in that place. For some of you this morning, maybe reality is great. Despite the challenges of a global pandemic and a mental health crisis, you've managed to skate through this thing and you're in a pretty good spot. If that's you, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that's you. But if you have a heart that works, unlike the tin man, you still have feelings about your life. Worries and insecurities and feelings of inadequacy and negative self-talk and unresolved hurts and losses that you need to grieve and disappointments. And those are places where God is inviting you to meet him. Those feelings are invitations from God. And you need to practice walking through those now so that when the stuff really does hit the fan, you've rehearsed for it and you know where to go. And then for some of you, your soul just feels in distress you, you feel emotionally overwhelmed. And Jesus sees you. And he understands. And he's inviting you to step into your own psalm and to bring your whole self before him. And the great thing is all you have to do is show up honestly. That's, that's the one requirement. Just show up honestly. And God will meet you with love and grace and compassion. And the degree to which you are willing to do that is the degree to which you'll experience the healing 
his healing presence and the transformation of being in an intimate relationship with him. And here's the thing too, to the degree that you are not willing and able to do that right now, there's all the grace in the world for that. This is an invitation from Jesus. He's patiently inviting you to meet him beneath the surface. And we know the rest of the story, right, Um, from the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus does, in fact, surrender to his Father's will. If he was trying to manage stuff, it would have taken him somewhere other than the cross. But because he walks through it with the Father, he gets in a place of surrender to the Father's will, and he goes on to the cross, and he gives his life to pay for our sins and to accomplish our redemption, to, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And to bring us into loving union with God. And here's what the cross of Jesus proclaims. And what we celebrate every week when we, when we partake of communion as the family of God. Like the cross of Jesus proclaims to us that there is no place too broken or too ugly or too hurtful or too dysfunctional or too shameful in your story and in your soul for God to meet you. In fact, I would say the places in your story and in your soul and your emotional world that you hate the most are the places where he loves you the most and is the most tender. Isn't that what the scripture says? Where he's so tender that where the reed is bruised, he knows how to handle it with such gentleness that he doesn't break it. And when there's nothing left in your soul but the flickering like little orange flame, he knows how to carefully steward that and stoke that and tend that and care for that and heal that in a way that he doesn't snuff it completely out. Like, there's no place in your story or in your soul this morning, right now, that is too broken, too bad, too dysfunctional, too whatever for Jesus to meet you. He's dying to meet you. He died to meet you. And we celebrate that every week when we come to communion. If you didn't get a communion uh, cup on your way in, there's some down here at the front, and there's some in the back there in kind of a, a little entryway. And here's what communion represents. The juice represents the blood of Christ that was spilled for us and shed for us, poured out for us to save us from our sins. The, the bread represents his body that was broken for us to uh, bring us healing. To put, he was broken to put us back together. And if that's your boast and your hope and your confidence and joy, we invite you to, to, to partake of communion this morning and to, to practice your faith by tasting and remembering the goodness of God. If that's not where you're at, that's okay. Like, this is a safe place for you to be where you are on your journey. But if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, we would invite you to, to, to not participate. There's nothing magical about these elements. Um, and we would love to wrestle with you. So if you want to talk more about that, I'm sure Pastor Chris and others would be willing to hear more about your story, pray with you, and walk, walk with you. I'll walk through that with you. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. So would you bow your heads? Let's just go to the Father in prayer. Lord, would you have mercy on us now? And would you bring us to a place of surrender as you modeled for us? I pray right now that we would open our hands to just receive from you. And I pray that we would feel your grace to be wherever we are on our journey. I pray for redemption. I pray for growth, for healing. All, all the work that you want to do through the gospel, whatever, whatever the needs are, I pray that you would come and do that right now in this place. And I pray that you would bless this church. I pray this church would continue its legacy of, of why it founded to see the gospel go forward in this city. And I pray there would be that kind of fruit born from this place. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.